Welcome to Two Queers, Four Questions. I'm Ezra Thurman. I'm Agnes Berinsky. And we're two trans-Jewish artists creating our own four questions for each Jewish holiday to uncover their countercultural spirit. And here we are. Here we are. Where are we? I'm in Somerville, Massachusetts, in my home. And you? I'm I'm in Ridgewood, Queens. House sitting. House sitting. A temporary dwelling. I'm really excited for today. Me too. We're talking about Sukkot. Yeah, I had no idea that I was going to feel this way about Sukkot, but really I do. I know. It's like, it's the, um... It's like the the breeders of of holidays, like a band that's so good. But no, I'm just trying to think of an under underrated band. Oh, oh, oh. Um, you know, it's like it's waiting right there. I I guess it gets a short, it gets a unfair deal because like there's so much attention and prep for Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and then it's like oh, also Sukkot, but like. Like, a lot of people are like, I'm not going to synagogue again. Screw well, that. Also, you really have to be ready for it because, you know, the ideal is to start building your sukkah right after you have to pour in. So you have to, you actually have to be thinking about it in advance. You can't just sort of, like, wait and see how you feel in the day, you know. <sighs> I know. I know. It's a problem. <laughs> I'm not ready. I don't have my <laughs> stuff together. I think, I think I'm going to build a sukkah. I think. I hope. But it's hard. It's tricky. So, so what what are we doing? Yeah, what is what is this? Are we? We're, we're talking about Sukkot, which comes on the fifteenth of Tishrei, the full moon, the harvest moon. A nice five days after Yom Kippur. Should I do a little rundown of what we're? Do what a we're rundown doing? of Sukkot, major points, and then we'll ask our four questions. Great. Um, so Sukkot is is one of the three major pilgrimage holidays. There is Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot are the three holidays where Traditionally, the Israelites would go to the Temple in Jerusalem, make all kinds of sacrifices. But these are like big central festivals that are named in Tanakh. And um, the commandment is basically that you're going to have this festival of booths or of huts of Sukkot for seven days. The first day and the last day are holy days. The middle is Cholhamoled, or like, sort of like, you've got a little filter of holiday on your Instagram lens, but it's still... <laughs> Like the rest of your life is continuing. You can work. You can still. You can still work. So you build a little hut. You're supposed to rejoice, to celebrate, um, and reshet, to sit, to dwell in that hut. The other element that people think about is the, um, you have a shaking a lulav is the thing. You often get, I know when I'm in Crown Heights, I get stopped by um, folks saying, are you Jewish carrying a lulav and Ekra wanting me to shake? And this also comes from Leviticus. There's a verse about, gathering together the, these four species that the Rabbinic tradition has decided are the myrtle, the willow, the palm, and the etrog, or the citron. And mm-hmm. there's a series of blessings you say, there's a series of directions in which you shape the willow and etrog. That is all sort of like rabbinic accretion on this initial biblical injunction. The other parts that are sort of like to sort of race through these basics, the idea of ushpizin, of having visitors, which is both inviting 
pour into your sukkah and also inviting the ancestors, the patriarchs, the matriarchs, the gatriarchs into the synagogue. And there's also a tradition of saying Hoshanot, or like, which is where the English word Hosannas comes from. Like, you say Hallel, songs of praise. The last day of Sukkot is called Hoshana Rabba, the great big Hosanna. Um, mm. So generally, it's a very celebratory holiday that, and we'll talk more about this later, it gets tied into Kohelet, or the Book of Ecclesiastes, which is kind of a, on the surface, seems like kind of peculiar peculiar choice. Mm-hmm. Um, what am I missing? Joy, joy, joy. I have in the notes, joy, joy, joy. Yeah. Um, no, I think you're getting it. I think that's, that's, those are the basics. Those are the building blocks of Sukkot. Um, there, there's a lot of specifics about how you build a Sukkot, what counts as a Sukkot, like how you, the, the roof has to be made of plant material and you have to be able to see through it a little bit, but also you, you want it to protect you from rain to, you know, and yeah, it's, 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 a little persnickety, I guess, really. Yeah, those are the essentials. Yeah, we 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 just we just distilled since we are overflowing with thematic in, information. We really decided to to sharpen these questions to a simple, fine, generic point. Will you will you give us our first? Right. Question one: What do we build? Asuka. I guess I guess that what this question is asking, what do we build? What is a sukkah? What do we mean by it? What does it commemorate? I mean this brings in this brings in the question of what does this holiday commemorate? Especially you compare it to some other holidays, it's obvious Passover commemorates leaving Egypt and Shavuot commemorates receiving the Torah. And then this is like the third of those three. And what great event does it commemorate? Well, it commemorates is sort of a different kind of event, which is traveling for 40 years in the desert. Because according to, I think, just one verse in the Bible, you were housed in Sukkot. You, were, you, were, you lived in huts when you were traveling through the desert. And this, like, so this is a problem right away. In the Talmud, it's a problem, like, because it seems clear from every other part of the wilderness saga of the Israelites going toward the promised land, that they're living in tents. Like, it, like is that, is this just a different word for tents? No, this is, this is like a specific thing. It's like these huts. Um, so, so they are sort of arguing about it in the Talmud. Um, one rabbi says they'd lived in actual Sukkot. This is true. This is where they lived. It's hard. I don't. I don't know how he backs it up. And then somebody else says, I think Akiva says, no, they they these Sukkot were actually clouds of glory that protected them that we now symbolize by building Sukkot, which is kind of beautiful because the material is so. Earthy. Yeah, I mean, and it both of them point to a different kind, a different take on like the minimalism of a sukkah. Well, sukkah seems like a, a a minimalist holiday in some fundamental way. Like my, we we built it when I was growing up in my backyard, and um, 
ours always had three walls, just an open, one wall was an open door. And it's just, it's very like skeletal, minimal, and the roof uh, is barely attached, not attached, and you can see through it. Something in it seems to say like, this is enough. It's like, what if we made our living situation as bare and spare and basic essentials as possible? And and what if that made us remember that like we have been travelers, we have been refugees, and that ennobles. I mean, in a very symbolic way. I don't know if it like functionally. Well, I think it. I mean, it's certainly that comparison to Clouds of Glory ennobles this mm-hmm. humble structure and. There was that, I mean, I, we have talked a little bit about tracing the word sukkah back to schach, which is the word for the roofing material that's these plant matter that's not, that's, as you say, like, you're supposed to be able to see the stars, but not too much, so there's more sun and shade in it during the day, and it can't be attached. And schach, if you go into the word history, is means, like, entanglement or intertwining. Um, and also, like, if you, it's like part of an expression that if you, are laying back and crossing your legs. There's a sense of leisure, resting, mm-hmm. sort of just chilling out. Um, and like spreading also, spreading out. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Two things spreading and touching. I don't know, like, yeah. Which is what, as we learned from Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, the word that describes the two angels over the Mishkan, what they do. Yeah, yeah. Like overspread. In the portable sanctuary in the wilderness that 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 so much of the text of the torah is like devoted to describing there's these angels whose wings are there's like angels made of gold that whose wings are sochachim are the schach over the altar which feels like essential to what it is to this question of what we're building it's we're building something that is temporary fragile impermanent as you say like almost a parody of a bare bones house but is characterized by this action of like overspreading, um, caring for, shading, and also interlacing and entangling to weave. So like, it feels like we're building something that is about the protection that comes when you weave multiple pieces together, which I can't help but think of as a kind of idea of what community is, that you when you have the multiple interlacing parts of it. And I mean, even in the synagogue I go to, there's a sense of like, certain kinds of relationships are permanent and fixed and understood like uh, a marriage or a family, a parent-child relationship. And I think in that context, queer relationships and friendships often become sort of invisible. They're like the schach, they're not tied to each other in any legal or specific way. But I feel like there's something um, that I love about this image of the schach because it feels like it's it's a more expansive sense of what the relationships are that make us who we are and that overspread our lives. Yeah. I mean... The, the the temporariness of um, the sukkah is, it, it, it seems crucial. I mean, so much, I mean, like you're saying with relationships, so, so much in our life we're asked to, we ask, we have to make something that matters. We have to, we have to create something lasting. We have to establish ourselves, make a continuity, make a future, make a Jewish community, make a, the, an institution, you know, and um build a house that we know will be there. And Sukkot is this other stance, which is like, 
give it a rest. Like don't all these attempts to make something lasting, make something that doesn't last. And um, it seems to, to me, it like points to that, like the current moment, the passing moment is valuable in itself. And that's actually where, where joy is. So the a thing about Sukkot is that like the word joy is used a lot of times uh, in describing what you're supposed to do. I mean, it's in, in the Bible. They, it's like rejoice, be joyful, and be achsameach, be like only happy, purely happy. It's like it's really emphasizing the happiness feeling. I mean, well, we'll talk about it a little more when we when we talk about Kohelet in a minute. But um, there, there's like this kind of joy that is necessarily in a passing moment, in a moment that doesn't last. It's not like the happiness of like, I, I don't know, I'm I've found happiness in this permanent relationship or in this um, thing that I've built that will last my whole life. It's like. I just feel this joy right now. And that like, sh- that makes the joy have an intensity and in the moment fullness. Um, because again, like you said, with relationships, like there's a tendency to devalue, to devalue what's not um, finished, to devalue our unfinished selves because they're not finished, uh, to devalue the experience of a day in the wilderness because we haven't gotten to the destination yet. Um, I feel like we're sort of starting to drift into question two, which feels like the right. I mean, I think what you said is sort of the beautiful, the most beautiful expression of what we said about what we're building. We're building something that is not, that is unbuilt. We're in, we're in the, un, the unbuiltness. We've, we've got like yeah. the pieces sort of like sketched in and that's where we are. So what do we do when we're there? Which is, I guess I just secretly said our question. Question number two, what do we do? Oh, that's so, it's so sparse. These questions are so minimalist. Uh, just what do we do? Um, uh, but, but it's still, I'm letting it bleed a little from one to, from the first question to the second, because like um, being in that celebration of, of, of temporariness um, I just feel healed when when I allow myself to love my present self and not denigrate it because it's not finished. I, I, yeah, there's a there's a resonance with with my transness because I I don't know I I I don't know if I'm going somewhere if my transition if that's what it is is like from an origin to a destination. Or is it just a process that never resolves and never ends? But like either way, I need to be able to love myself, my body, my look, my way of being today. Like not not denigrate it because it's not yet something that maybe it's destined to become. I don't know. It, it parallels the, the journey through 
the wilderness. I mean, in the the Torah ends before they arrive, and the, it like there's something um, in that that seems to and in Sukkot that I think is telling us like the journey. Look at the journey. Learn how to be on the way without denigrating that time on the way, but actually ennobling it and feeling it as like a place of glory. Yes. Oh, I love that. The play, the way is a place of glory. Well, yeah, but sorry, but like question two, what do we do? What do we do in the sukkah? I mean, what is the, what is the commandment for us to do in, in the sukkah? Well, the two key verbs, there's rejoice, which we talked about before, and then there's, um, you shall dwell, you shall live. Teshuru. Um, yeah. So Leishev, which as you pointed out in our conversation earlier, is like such a different, it's not a, it's not an action that has an endpoint. It's not something you can say, like, I'm going to do, I'm going to perform this sacrifice. I'm going to wash my hands. I'm going to eat this right. bread, sip this wine. It's a thing that has no beginning and no end. I mean, I, I also think this verb, Leishev, is so rich and full. And, you know, there's the, the two verbs that come as a pair in my mind are Leishev and Lagur, right. um, which biblically Gur means to like to sojourn. There's this, this association with like Ger Haiti, a stranger I was in that place. Yeah. I passed through. I moved around. It's, I mean, somebody who an outsider is a Ger, right? Like some kind of yeah. And then go on, yeah. And and then Beshev um, is to sit, as we said. And, but also to rest, to remain. It's like when you settle, when you settle a place in a more permanent sense, that's the verb you would use. Um, inhabit. I mean, I think dwell, dwell feels to me like the kind of most beautiful translation of that verb because it's the sense of lingering, the sense of like deep, deep living as opposed to like right now what I'm doing is living in this, this apartment of my friend. Um, mm. I'm not, I'm not dwelling here. Yeah, yeah. Or, or are you? That's interesting. I mean, right? Can I? Can one dwell without a dwelling? But maybe that's the message of Sukkot. Um. Well, so I want to. I feel like I want to. Let's dwell on dwell. Can we dwell on dwell? I feel like there's something. Let's dwell on dwell. Uh, what is there even to say? I mean, okay. I feel like there were so many texts that came to me in the course of this week, um, accidentally and on purpose. One I think is Lord's song. Stone to the Nail Salon, I think, is a beautiful Sukkot anthem. I hadn't heard it, and I just heard it after you mentioned it in prepping for this. And yeah, it's really, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty special song. The other text is that is this Heidegger essay. Um, this is a, another favorite hobby of bringing um, Nazism into conversation with the Jewish holidays. But oh boy. building dwelling thinking is really stunning and feels like it, the whole thing is kind of a Sukkot essay. And I recommend he talks a lot about dwelling as what does it mean to really dwell as a human being in place? And he talks about dwelling as both establishing and sort of unlocking relationships in a certain way. Like he talks about how when you build, when you build a bridge over the river, the bridge isn't creating the banks, but in some ways it is like the banks are banks when the bridge exists there to connect them. And they become fully themselves as banks when the bridge is there. And like before the bridge is built anywhere along the river, it's a potential place for this bridge. But like once the bridge exists, like this is the place where the bridge 
crosses the river and he mm. talks about the earth and the sky and the water and like it really pulls things into relationship in a kind of incredible way and and he roots that relationship in just the act of dwelling which is what he says humans do and i think that that you know we talked about the sukha that there's this relationship to the stars in the sky and to the wind that moves through and to the ground underneath you into a sense of like all the things all the relationships that are a part of the sukha it's like a structure but it's also in some ways a little like engine that brings all these different huge forces into relationship in a cool way and i feel like that yeah to me that idea of dwelling is like actually kind of activating or like um bringing into relief like adjusting the contrast in the in the jpeg that just like saturates the color more of all these relationships yes it's like it it somehow integrates everything around it i mean the sukha is like not a discrete place it's like the stars coming in are are part of it and i don't know that that seems like one of the differences between a sukha and a house sort of is like the sukha is just porous it just is not quite there it's in relation to the world around it right because a um, house can often feel it feels like a protection but it can also feel quite confining i mean this line that i pulled mm-hmm. from the essay how do you say is mortals dwell in that they save the earth saving does not only snatch something from a danger to save properly means to set something free into its own essence and i think about like what it means to grow up as a queer kid and how you know, when you're just speaking hypothetically, but also speaking about myself, like moving through school and 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 meeting people, and there's this guardedness, whether you're sort of aware of it or not. I think that you have because you're just not sure whether you have how safe it is to be who you, in some deep sense, know who you are. And I think that like that idea of setting something free into its own essence is to like is when the queer kid finds queer community or leaves the house and goes into this external place. And there's, there's a certain kind of protection and safety that comes from the structure of community or the structure of a sense of belonging. And that feels like the, the sort of loose protection of, that a sukkah provides, but there's also this sense of access to a bigger world and a sense of like yeah. freedom yeah. to be a full self. Yes. There's this, there's this anxious protection afforded by being in yeah. the closet. And, but, but there's like a freedom. um, When you come out, you make yourself vulnerable and you can feel actually more safe, less anxious by being more open to, to the world and its dangers and it's, it's rain and it's um, transphobia and, strangely like sometimes when you open yourself in that way of coming out of your little secret hoarding enclosure you like feel less anxious you feel um safer more protected um even though your walls are all barely there and like there's no roof over your head i and it's kind of a giving up it's like I can't protect myself from harm. Even protecting myself from harm is a kind of harm. If I'm not free, if I'm not like integrated with the world. um, Yeah. A sukkah is definitely not a closet. A closet is definitely not a sukkah. 
I have to, I have to say, I have to talk about Sukkot two years ago. Maybe this is our, maybe this is our lead into question three. I don't know. There's, I mean, I just want to also, like, we didn't talk about the Lulav and the Etrog, and I think that that's a doing thing too, which we just, oh my we God, just touch so briefly because there's a way in which like, yeah, you hold the, you hold these four plant species together. The Lulav and the Etrog. The Etrog is one of the species and then the other three are bound together in the Lulav. Um, you hold them together and you, sh- you wave them or shake them in all directions, meaning side to side, forward and back, and up and down. It's a gesture toward the entire world, basically. And it's a gesture of, of joy. I, I, I saw this thing in, in the Talmud. Uh, I, I saw this thing in the Talmud that they were talking about how, like, all you really need, need to do for the mitzvah is to take the lulav and etrog and hold them and say a blessing. But it's like extra celebration to, to wave them around. And one guy says, uh, <laughs> when Rav Achab Bar Yaakov would move the lulav to and fro, he would say, this is an arrow in the eye of Satan. Because it's like, I'm rubbing it in your face. Not only am I doing the mitzvah, but I'm like shaking it around and dancing, you know. Um, it's like a extra joy and like, screw you, Satan. I guess the idea was that Satan doesn't want you to do mitzvah. That's like what people always say. Well, I just, I don't have any problem with queer people. I just wish they wouldn't rub it in my face. And on this holiday, we rub it in their face. <laughs> yes. Yes. Lulav and Etrog are like the opposite of assimilation. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's also it, I I like the everythingness of it. The like pointing in all directions. There's a there's a I don't know if this is a Hasidic thing. I can't remember where this comes from. But like each, the idea is that each of the four species represents one of of four types of people. Um, the Etrog has a scent and a taste. And that represents people who do good deeds and study Torah. And then one of them has a scent but no taste. And that's like people who do good deeds but don't study Torah. And then one of them has a taste but no scent. And that that's people who, who study Torah but don't do good deeds. And then one of them has neither. The palm has no scent or no taste. And those are people who don't do good deeds and don't study Torah. And like you need all of these for the community. All of these people are are necessary for this mitzvah and for this community. So that too, like the shaking it in all directions, it seems like to gesture toward everyone, like we're all in this. I like that. I like that. Um, okay, I haven't forgotten about Sukkot two years ago, but we want to introduce question three. Yeah, question three. Why is Kohelet so emo? And this, because it's a holiday process, this is like one of many draft versions of this question. Yeah, because like, because yeah, no, we were wondering like, if if Kohela was in like a post punk band, like what kind of band? Like, is it like death metal, or is it like emo, or just like like thrash hardcore right. punk? You know, um, or yeah, or is it like something more like I don't know, Raina Maria. <laughs> <laughs> like it's a real emo, uh, bright eyes, but Kohelet, Kohelet has a famous the famous opening line, which really kind of sums up the whole thing. Is like, 
vanity, vanity, all is vanity, or hevel, 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 havelim, vanity of vanities, or pointless, pointless, or, or it's the whole thing is like, why does anything matter? It doesn't matter. Um, everything just disappears. You can't, like, nothing lasts. Everything you accomplish is, like, worth nothing because you just die. <laughs> and this is, like, one of the most pointedly joyful holidays. And, like, why would we read this book on Shabbat of Sukkot? It's a vexing question. Right, and also God is not in Kohelet. Unless you think God is everywhere in Kohelet. But God is also nowhere in Kohelet. Right. God, yeah. Oh, is God not mentioned in Kohelet? Quick editor's note to say that God does actually appear in Kohelet, but rather incidentally. Whoa. So it's like fully maybe Buddhist or maybe nihilist, yeah. you know? It, it's hard to tell sometimes if it is like pure despair or a sort of detachment. But like it does seem depressed yeah yes i i will tell this story about two years ago on sukkot which like so the context is i was living i had just moved to boston in summer 2019 and um it turned out my landlord was a openly transphobic person who hated us and didn't trust us and was hassling us about everything all the time and it felt like we had just moved into has that feeling of you move to a new city, into a new house. Just like, you're like, this is just where I am. This doesn't feel like home at all. I feel so, I guess I'm here, but I'm like not really feeling that centered homeness feeling. It just feels sort of temporary. Um, and then Sukkot came along and uh, we decided to build a sukkah, even though like, I don't know. It felt like, okay, we're going to have to talk to the landlord and make sure he's okay with it. He was sort of a power hungry person. He was like, he, I, I felt like it, he, he liked how it gave a, a little power over us for him to be like, Oh yes, certainly you can do your ritual. Um, but he was like, and this is very reasonable and helpful thing for him to say. He was like, make sure you just tie down Secure the sukkah. Secure the thing that you're building. Because we like told him what it was. And he was like, I have seen like videos of like sukkah like blowing away in the wind and like you gotta secure it. And we were like, Oh yes, of course, of course, of course, of course, of course. And then we built the whole sukkah. We were like having people over the first night of Sukkot, a bunch of like queer rabbinical students and stuff. Just like it was like a very joyful thing having people over and we were like preparing everything and we forgot to secure the sukkah. We did not tie it down, and it just totally went out of our minds, even though we promised that we would. This was our mistake, obviously. And so we had our, like, rapturous beginning of the holiday, and then, like, three days, three, four days in, middle of Sukkot, it was, like, the windiest day of the year. I Obviously, I had totally forgotten about securing the sukkah. I was out at a coffee shop, and I just got a text from my landlord that was a photograph of the sukkah upside down on the bike shed. It had completely 
caught the wind exactly as he predicted and turned upside down. And like, he was like, you have to get here right now. And I just like ran home. We're like in high winds, just like, like trying to climb up on this bike shed and take this sugar apart. There's like broken glass bulb string lights everywhere. It was such, it was like everything in my life was like you, there's you, there is no way to have a home in this world. You know, like that's how it felt. It was like, and actually like, it was like almost our one moment of bonding me and this landlord was like trying to get this sukkah off the <laughs> bike shed. Cause like it was actually dangerous. I mean, if it had blown the other way, you know, it could have gone into the street or something and like, you know, hurt really hurt somebody. It was like, it was of significant size. It was just like, Kohela. It was just like anything you try to build will will be overturned. Anyway, I felt so <laughs> I felt so vulnerable in the world on Sukkot two years ago. I'm sorry. Maybe maybe we'll cut that whole thing out. I just felt like it had to be said. In the abstract, it's easy to say like, ah, oh, vanity, vanities. We must be joyful because of things falling apart. But like, really, that's a situation where. How do you, in this felt vulnerability and this like near catastrophe of this thing blowing away, near catastrophe that it could have hurt somebody, like where is the joy in that? Is there access to joy in that? Which feels like another way of asking, like, how do we link the sort of nihilism of Kohelet to the kind of joy we're being asked to inhabit? Yeah. It's also so perfect because. Havel, vanity is like also wind. So it really was literally vanity that picked up your sukkah. Yeah, that word that gets translated vanity, Havel. Yeah, it means wind or, or a shallow breath or a fleeting breeze or breath. Um, that's its literal translation. And I think there's something in Kohela, that's like this that same that same relief of anxiety that comes from coming out of the closet. Like like the the will to um not cling to certain types of security. To just like admit it. Like you can't protect yourself in this world. You can't build something that lasts. Nothing lasts. You will lose everything. And and it's something about that. I think in the right tone of voice, it like turns a key in your mind and you're like, oh, I have today. And like, it's a joy. Today is a joy. You just, it's, it's like a facing the thing that, that you spend so much energy trying to avoid, which is like death, really. It's like, or, or the, the the fact that things don't last. I mean, to really um, go to the full seriousness of that, it's, I mean, it's been the last two years have been years of a lot of loss for a lot of people. And I know we've talked about people we've known who have passed away that year. There was a moment um, back in April when it was just so two very young people I knew, like a coworker of mine at this bookstore and then, um, an actor I worked with and 
was very close to a dear collaborator of mine both passed away really senselessly, suddenly, unexpectedly. Um, and I just, the other week, went to a memorial service for the actor, which was really so beautiful. And this person was somebody who herself had um, experienced a lot of grief. I think her parents had passed away. I think she had lost a partner. Uh, and there are so many people who were at this memorial service who talked about how good she was at being with them when they were in painful moments like that. And somebody said that Dana did a beautiful job of like, when you're in grief, how do you begin a process of healing from that, that expands outward as opposed to folds inward. And I, I think the idea is not like, let's deny how painful grief and loss is because in so many ways, the depth of our ability to feel grief is commensurate with the depth of our ability to feel joy. Like they're just the same. It's the same capacity. So it's not that we shouldn't feel grief at loss. It's, it's that how do we, how do we uh, like honor the profundity of that and honor the ways in which what allows grief to be so deep is the depth of the love that preceded it or that, that accompanies it. And, uh, and how do we use those moments to like, to build, yeah, just to build outward, to, to like both support each other, to build, like these, a sense of the, the sanctity, the joy, the richness of the connections we have in this world with people who are around us with an awareness that these things can be disrupted at any moment. But it, I don't know, it, it, it doesn't feel like this sort of commandment to um, rejoice on this holiday is about a denial of death or a denial of loss. Um, I think it's more like a... yeah. It's like a feel it. It's feel feel the depth that is that we are capable of as mortal beings in a world full of mortality and transience. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, Sukkot, like emotionally, it, it seems like it always involves this relief after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Like you've been through this intense experience of yearning for forgiveness and, and, and trying to ask God for favor and hope, hope you are doing everything right. And there's like so much anxiety in, in those. And then it's just like, I don't know. It's a feeling of have, like when you've come through a kind of hell and then you're like, I'm not sure how to put it into words. I too have, um, in the past two years, there's been a lot of uh, death in my life. A lot of people I know have died. And um, I think we all know the feeling of having lost someone and then having this feeling like, well, looking forward, I'm going to I didn't appreciate that person as though they were going to be gone soon. And it makes you want to appreciate the people around you who like are not promised to be here tomorrow. And it makes you want to appreciate your own experience, which is not promised to, you know, go on forever or even make it to the end of today. Um, 
and that is that is expressly in Kohelet, I think. Um, it's sort of like at some point. I mean, yes, there's a lot of like despair, but there's also like you should just be happy, just be happy and enjoy life while you have it because it doesn't last. And I mean, I guess it's got the dark, it's got a dark edge to it, but I, I feel it as real, as real, real joy. I mean, as something that happened after my friend died just about a year ago, um, it, it was a friend of mine who died by suicide and it, amid the grief and and after the grief I was like well not only do I have to appreciate my friends and see them more go see them and celebrate them you know but it was also like I mean we were deep in in this like lockdown life and um I think my friend died of lack of joy um in some way you know I don't know I mean Maybe that's not even for me to say that, but it did make me want to live. It just gave me this like rage to live this like, this like, oh, joy is actually available to me every day and I need it to live. I actually need to turn toward this, this joyful feeling. Well, there's something in, there's an immediacy to that feeling. I think on Yom Kippur, we feel fear of God. Um, but even that, as much as we hope it to be visceral, is kind of a feeling and, an, and a relationship that stretches our imagination. Um, and the relationship and the feeling you're describing right now, that rage to live, rage for joy, and these very palpable relationships with the people in our lives that we love, those are so in our bodies and so... Um, with us, and I, in a certain way, it, it feels right to me that God would not appear in an explicit way in Kohelet, and that the Sukkot are both are and are God is super present in them, and also is not explicitly present in the way that God is like a character in the story of Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. Um, I, I think that that like relationship with friends and and that relationship to the act of living is that divinity is all pervasive and all of that, but it's not a divinity that we have to imagine and externalize. It's like a divinity that's in our, um, in our bodies. Maybe this is question four time. Yeah. Yeah. Question four, who's invited and why? Who's invited and why? Well, we know that Ushpizian have to be on the list because they get annoyed if we don't. You never hear the end of it if you forget to invite them. Yeah, well, maybe we should talk about Ushpizian first. Or, well, I, I, maybe just to ground us in 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 the Bible, um, in the, uh, yeah, in the commandment about Sukkot, I mean, in the version of it that's in Deuteronomy, um, there's this line, and thou shalt rejoice in thy feast, thou and thy son and thy daughter, and thy manservant and thy maidservant, and the Levite and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow that are within thy gates. I'm reading some 
old ass antiquated translation, but it's like a big list of people who are like coming to the feast on Sukkot. It's like invite the fatherless, invite the widow, invite the stranger, everyone come on over to my place. Um, it's like a, it's like an expansive, uh, invitation. And, and I think there's something about the sukkah being like outside in the yard. You just walk by and you, and you see it. And like in, in certain places I've been like Berkeley, California comes to mind. There's like a bunch of Jews around with Sukkot outside. And it really does feel like I could walk by a sukkah that it can, it, no one I know is there and just be like, like, and they'll like, they'll like give me a shot of whiskey or something or a uh, plate of food. And like, that's a very special thing. It's very Sukkot. So this is, I like, I think that that's a good angle because the tradition is then that has been extrapolated from that is both to invite um, those who have less into one Sukkah and also to invite the ancestors. And there are all those kind of, I was reading, there's like a Savardi tradition where you take a chair and you fill it with books and you say this is for Abraham Sarah but it's really like a it's yeah. it feels very different from like the Amidah where we say I have the same God as my ancestors or from Pesach where we're supposed to feel like as if we were our ancestors this is actually inviting them in come dwell with me here in this moment um, and I think that that's I get shivers sometimes when I think about that feeling of just like yeah what if to consciously invite all the people who came before us who are made possible who we are. And I think of, I certainly think of queer ancestors too in that regard, that it's when you take a moment to feel the presence of them, it's quite, it's quite powerful. Well, to me, it feeds into the thing we were already talking about multiple times now, like the, the sort of general uh, thrust of Sukkot being like about integration and uh, porousness and admitting the uh, interdependence of, of being. Someone, I, a, 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 Viet, a Vietnamese Buddhist monk writer who I really like named Thich Nhat Hanh uh, coined this term interbeing. He wants it to also be a verb, like these, these things in the world inter-are. So, I mean... He describes, he starts with like the sheet of paper that his writing is on, um, has a tree in it and it has the sun and the rain in it, which fed the tree and has the soil in it, which where the tree grew. Like these things are part of the sheet of paper, but also the person who planted the tree and the people who taught that person to plant trees and the food that fed those people. And it, it zooms out and out until this sheet of paper has all of existence in it. Um, and like, this is a good way for Thich Nhat Hanh. This is like the way he sees the world in, in each discrete object. He sees everything else that, that, that is necessary for it to be. And, um, there is that feeling in just acknowledging ancestry that like, we do not exist without the people who 
came before us and uh, put the I don't know just put the pieces of play in uh, put the pieces in place who 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 made the tradition that we're living they're actually um, here and and Sukkot has this thrust of like let's talk about that let's um, let's let that in and admit that we're not discreet and our walls are not it feels like that extends beautifully through time it also feels like it is meant to extend across space in the place where we are and it's coming back to what you were describing as happening in berkeley or feeling that possible in berkeley but i have just been thinking in the kind of this holiday about um uh where i live in la it's right upstream from echo park lake and there was this um, encampment that got built over the course of the, the pandemic year. And I'm thinking about um, my neighbors who live there, who are very much in temporary dwellings. Um, but I think the thing there was, eventually the encampment was cleared by the police. There was police in riot gear and tear gas. It was all kind of yeah. um, a little outrageous. I... Days of helicopters and millions of dollars spent to um, tear apart these tents. But I think what it, and, you know, I would go for walks most days around that lake and would watch this encampment grow and evolve. There was a garden that got planted there with these showers that went from being like little temporary structures with garbage bag walls to things made out of plywood. There there was a communal kitchen. You know, as I learned later and heard people talk about experience of living there, there was also like a, a jobs program that was working for a little bit. And there was, I think, just generally a sense among the people who lived there that if you have your tent anywhere else in LA, if you leave it for the day, you're never sure if it's going to be back when you get there. And you also are never sure if you're physically going to be safe in your home. But there was a sense in this yeah. encampment that I can go out into my day, move around, work my job, see my family, and then come back. And I know that my going to be here. Um, I think what I think of yeah. the, what got built there is, um, are these physical structures, but really what got built there are these, these relationships and, um, and I, I think, I mean, you've talked about one idea of God as being the possibility of relationship. Um, and I think that yeah. when we think about Sukkot and this idea of inviting people in, it almost reminds us that what we're building in our life are not the physical structures of what's being built. What we're building are, um, the relationships that are made possible by the act of building and by the act of building together. I mean, there's a this theater director, Eugenio Barba, who has this essay that I love where he says that what gets made when you make a piece of theater is a piece of theater, but also the relationships. You make a, a series of relationships. Um, mm-hmm. And I just think that that's, yes. in thinking about the Spizian and who's invited into the Sukkah, it's, it's about a physical space, but it's about a physical space as kind of a catalyst for um, something much less tangible, but much more profound. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much to say there. I mean, I mean, so this holiday and the tradition of, of making the huts um, comes from being a, a group of escaped slaves, right? It, and it, it comes from a, this refugee experience and this mass of people that um, became a community um, in, in hopes of surviving the the elements and just the the chaos and instability of being 
you know, first oppression and then being thrust out of that oppression into, into open space and a uncertain journey. Yeah. What happened in, in Echo Park was, was this a sort of stunning community building and then like a horrific destruction of that community for, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't living there, but you were kind of telling me about it and, it just seemed like there was, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't discern any good reason for that community being um, ruined by the cops. I think some rich people were like, I don't like, they're, they're making the park less pretty. It's also this focus on, and I could go off, as you know, go off on this forever, but there's this focus on physical structures. Like what we need to deal with homelessness is to build, and there's this now do this thing where they, where they build in these tiny houses, these sort of condescending little cute dwellings that are um, almost like dog houses that they're spending a lot of money on and housing very few people in. And I think the thing that is to me a lesson about the, the continued fallout of the people who lived in Echo Park and have since been scattered around and moving from place to place is that the physical structure is not the important thing. It's, it's the sense of a stability yeah. of community. Um, that's the important thing. Yeah. So like, I, I just what makes me want to ask, like, can, can, for all the things that Sukkot is coming to like, well, our, our mutual teacher, B'nai Lappi, um, once described the, the Jewish holidays as like, they each have a, a part of us that it's like comes to supercharge that part to like, to like awaken this, some quality in the way we live and, and in the way we see the world and carry ourselves. Maybe could, could one of the things that Sukkot is supercharging be, I guess, the interdependence of our lives um, as opposed to, like, a scarcity and a hoarding and a, this is my house, nobody come in because these are the walls that protect me. Like, maybe Sukkot just could ask us to see that we're actually more protected when we're open to our neighbors when we know our neighbors and they're invited into our structures that like an economy of sharing makes more for everyone which i think is true and i think it's really like everything in the way my world at least is structured pushes against that and tells me to hoard and um i mean it it is really striking the intensity of the situation is based on which is like refugees from slavery in a hostile wilderness, all depending on each other and building temporary structures that have to be portable. I mean, like a fundamental homelessness, but also a simultaneous like home in each other and home in God and being sheltered by clouds of glory. Like maybe that is kind of an ideal. Maybe that is kind of a utopia in a way. It's like better than houses of stone. That feels like a beautiful prayer to close on. <sighs> I think Sukkot is my new favorite holiday, at least until Shmini Yatzeret comes around. <laughs> oh, buckle up, baby! <laughs> I think I think as as well. We'll say farewell. Um, I just want to re up that um, that we have a email address that you can send us um, feedback, 
questions, teachings, corrections, and ideas. It is number two queers, number four questions. Sorry, two queers, four questions at gmail.com. Well, thanks everyone for being with us. We love making this. And we'll see you next time. Yeah, happy Sukkot. Bye. Bye.